we see what, not what is, but what we want to see. We don't see what is, we see what we want to see. And you know, I could show you a thousand pictures right now to illustrate that. Pictures from science to relationships to money, concrete issues, more mystical issues. We see what we want to see. Let me show you one illustration. Picture here of the earth reminds us of creation. Obviously, people are going to look at this very differently. You can have one individual dive down into the details of everything that picture represents. And when they look at that, what they see is all of the evidence of an intelligent designer. They see the evidence for a creator God. Now, somebody else could look at all of that exact same evidence. And what they see is billions of years of evolution. Two people looking at the exact same thing. And they not only see a different thing, they see something that is absolutely contradictory. We see what we want to see, not what is. Now, if that's the case, then the question becomes, what's the driver of the want? If what I want to see is determining what I see, then what's driving that want? Well, on one hand, I, if, there's a whole bunch of things that goes into that. Our, our experiences, our beliefs. You've got one person who believes in God, they're going to see God in things. You've got one who's adamantly committed to not seeing God, they're not going to see God in anything. So our experiences, our beliefs, our hang-ups... You know what? If you've been abused, you see through eyes of mistrust. If you've been taken advantage of, you see, you see through eyes of skepticism. If life always turns up roses for you, everything is always good, you tend to see the good in everything, even if that good isn't there. Some see God, some see blind chance. We see what we want to see, not what is. But you know what? There's one thing that is a bigger determinant than beliefs or experiences. There's one thing that is a bigger determinant on what we want to see. There's one thing that has touched the eyesight of every single person in this room, and that's sin. And that sin blinds us. It makes us blind to, to who we are. It makes us blind as we look out into our world and try to interpret and analyze and understand what is happening from good to evil and everything in between. It blinds us to our own problems. It blinds us to our self. And here's the real kicker of it all. We think we can see. Our eyes need to be fixed. And Jesus can fix our eyes. But now wait a minute. That statement, Jesus can fix our eyes. Am I just saying that because that's what I want to see? Is it my beliefs that determine that I see that Jesus can do that? How do I know that's really what is? Well, you know, I'm reminded of the, as we look at these signs Jesus gives us, I'm reminded of, an, of a pilot in an airplane. You know what? A pilot is actually taught not to trust his eyesight. Your eyes will deceive you as you look out this window. You need to trust your instrumentation. Trust the instrumentation there inside the airplane. Folks, Jesus has put signs into our life that we are to trust. We're to look at those signs more than our own ability to see. And those signs show us who Jesus Christ is. 
And Jesus introduces himself to you and to me, and he says, I am the light of the world. Now, that's a big statement. I am the light of the world. Matter of fact, that's one of those I am statements that we're going to be studying in the weeks ahead. As we're working our way through John, we've looked at, so we're looking at seven signs. We're going to look at seven I am statements, and down the road, seven witnesses. Well, one of those I am statements is Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Well, the sixth sign that we're going to look at today is Jesus giving evidence to that statement. He is going to back up physically, concretely, that spiritual statement that he's making. And boy, do we need this. Because we do deal with good and evil, don't we? We do deal with, with opportunities and God. And then on another hand, we deal with suffering and hurt. And we deal with ourselves. We need to have our eyes fixed. We need to have a proper eye as we look at ourselves. Let's see what Jesus can do for us this morning. Would you look with me at John chapter 9? John chapter 9, fourth book into the New Testament. John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some there in the chairs in front of you. If there's not one right in front of you, there shouldn't have to look too far down the road to find one. I'm sure you can point to it. Somebody will hand you one. John chapter 9 I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says there, As he was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After, it said, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and he came back saying, You know, when you and I open up the word of God, we kind of anticipate we're going to see miracles, don't we? Gosh, we see miracles from parting of the Red Sea to fire falling from heaven to bread being on the ground to Jesus walking on water. But you know what's interesting, and I didn't really notice this until I really studied this passage. There's not a single case of somebody's sight being restored in the Old Testament. Not one. Somebody being healed from blindness is actually pretty rare. Not one time in the Old Testament do we see that. Are you ready for this? Not one time in the New Testament outside of Jesus do we see somebody being healed from blindness. John, Peter, the other apostles that are recorded doing miracles, it's never recorded that they restore sight. It's kind of interesting, though, let's kind of flip it now. As rare as this miracle is, of all the miracles Jesus does, guess which one is the most common? Healing the blind. Along with this reference right here, there are eight references in the New Testament to Jesus healing the blind. And several of those references, more than one person is healed. So this is a very common miracle for Jesus. Now it's interesting, in the Old Testament it says that restoring of sight is an activity that can be attributed to only God Himself. It also says that when you see somebody restoring sight, that's a picture of messianic activity. In other words, it's a sign that points to the Messiah. 
That's what it says in the Old Testament. Now here we are in the New Testament, in the book of John. We're studying these signs and we've said a sign is an event It's something physical right in front of you, but it's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to something bigger. And obviously, in its simplest form, this story is pointing to one simple fact. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one of God. Now, as this story begins, it doesn't begin with the miracle. It actually begins with kind of a a little bit of a theological discussion. Jesus and his disciples are are walking along and they, they come across a beggar. I don't know, sitting on the corner, sitting up against a a building or something. And one of the disciples looks over there and says, you know, hey, Lord, I always kind of wonder when I walk by somebody like this. Is he like that because of his sin or his parents' sin? Now, notice the question. It implies somebody's sin did this. He only gives Jesus two options. Either this guy did it to himself through his own sin or his parents did this to him through their sin. Whose sin did this? And Jesus said, well, no one's sin. It wasn't the parents or this child that caused this man to be born blind. Now, let's understand that statement as we take in the whole of Scripture. Sin is the culprit. Jesus is saying it was not a specific sin committed by mom or dad. It wasn't a specific sin committed by a baby that produced this blindness. It wasn't their specific sin in this moment. Now, we do know that sin can cause sickness. Remember John 5? We studied the lame man. He'd been lame for 38 years. His sin caused that. So sin can cause, an individual's sin can cause sickness in their life. But Jesus said, in this case, no, that's not the case. Just because somebody's sick does not necessarily mean a specific sin by them caused that. But sin's still the culprit. We live in a fallen world. God made a perfect world. And, And he gave us perfect bodies. But he also gave us a choice. He gave us a free will to choose him. And and he laid out a perfect and a safe path for us. And that that path is displayed. It's talked about. It's written all throughout the Bible. The Bible is that path. And and we looked at the Bible. We looked at that path and said, you know, I, I, I think I've got more insight on this whole path thing than God does. I think I can do better on my own and you and I and you. Every single one of us, nobody born ever has not done this. We stepped off the path. I can do better over here by myself. I'll do things the way I want to. And folks, when we step off the path, things break. When we step off the path, it brings problems. Say, where's all the problems? The, 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 The war, the famine, hurt, pain, cancer, babies born blind. Where does it all come from? It comes from you and me, a host of six billion other people, stepping off the path saying, I can do it better without God. That's what produces this. Wasn't particularly the sin's parents that did this, but sin is the culprit. And Jesus says here, this happens so that the work of God can be displayed. Now that doesn't mean that God caused the baby to be born blind so that some amount of years later he could come and do this work. It means that God let a fallen world run its course. God let sin do what sin does so that then he could step down into this world and show, you know what, my work, my word, my power is really a lot better. 
And as you and I look around at the mess we're making of things, and then we see God's work, we see God's revelation, we say, you know what, God's right. If, if things are broken out here, I need to get back onto God's path. And Jesus then introduces the fact that He has entered this world to do work. He's entered this world to deal with the sin, to deal with the problems that we've brought into our lives. And it's in that introduction that he says, I am the light of the world. I'm here to restore sight. And he's not talking about this guy over here. He's talking about every one of us. All of us are born blind spiritually. A handful of us are born blind physically. And Jesus says, I have come to restore sight so that you can see God, so that you can see His path, so that you can see His revelation. But how do I know? I mean, that's a big statement. Anybody can stand up here and say, I'm the light of the world. But how many people are then going to say, now that's a spiritual statement. Let me walk over here then in the physical realm and prove it. And Jesus spits. That's kind of odd, isn't it? I've never really imagined God spitting. My mom slapped me once for spitting. Oh, let's see you slap God, mom. You know, did you imagine that? It's kind of awkward. Why, why does he do that? Why does, why does God spit and make mud and heal this guy this way? I mean, as I said, there's beyond this one, there's seven other references that refer to Jesus healing the blind and he never, he never does that. Why does he do that? Could it possibly be just because he's creative? You know, Jesus is absolutely consistent with his character. He's always truthful. He's always just. He's always wrathful. He's always forgiving. He is absolutely true to who he is. But that consistency should not be confused with boring. That consistency should not be confused with monotony. He is a wonderfully creative person. You know, he's incredibly artistic. It is Jesus who put the stripes on the tiger. It is Jesus who created this vast array of birds and fish with all their colors and the thousands of flowers. Jesus did that. He's an artist, incredibly creative. And in that creativity, after painting everything like he did, he created this wonderful little instrument that you and I call the eyeball. It's a wonderful contradiction to the entire evolution theory. You say, well, what do you mean it's a, it, it's a contradiction to the evolutionary theory? There is in science a thing called the irreducible minimum. There are some things it has to work right the very first time out of the gate. But see, evolution doesn't really allow for that. Scientists look around not wanting to see God... So they have to give some kind of expression to how this all got here. And they look around, they see the incredible order, they see the incredible design. There is absolutely no chance that it just happens. But, you know, for that once in a bazillion, bazillion, bazillion chance that it might. Well, to have that bazillion and a bazillion, bazillion chance, you need billions and billions of years for it all to take place. And so they imagine this single cell organism climbing up out of the primordial soup. One day this single cell organism is going to fly. One day it's going to see. And over billions of years it'll tweak, it'll change, it'll grow. And pretty soon it'll have eyesight and be able to fly. There's just one problem. Do you know what you call an animal that's supposed to fly but can't and is blind? You call it dinner. 
It doesn't survive. You can't have an eyeball take billions of years to get to the incredible complexity that it is. It has to work right out of the gate. So evolution has this thing where it needs billions of years for it to tweak and work its way out. But it's got to have something show up instantly and work right away. Ah, but there's only a problem. There's only one scientific theory of creation that calls for instant and functioning right out of the gate. That's a creator God. That's an intelligent designer. And that God instantly spoke everything into, cre into creation. Took six days that he designed and he painted and he created. And on that sixth day, he reached down into the dirt. And out of that dirt, he formed and he fashioned a man and a woman. And that exact same God is standing right here in John 9. And just like he did back at the beginning of creation, he reached down into that same dirt he created and he recreated that man's eyes. What a reminder. What a picture of the God who spoke existence into being is standing right here in front of us. And now the guy can see. And what we see here is a physical demonstration. Folks, don't get caught up in the physical. The physical's not the exciting part. The physical ends. It's the spiritual that counts. The physical is simply a display of what he can do spiritually in our lives. So the man goes home seeing. And as he goes home seeing, we enter one of the biggest three-ring circuses in all the Bible. I love John chapter 9. It is a comedy for the rest of the story. The first thing that happens is this guy goes home, and because people do not go out to work one day blind and then come back home seeing, it doesn't happen. Well, when everybody sees them, they just assume their eyes are deceiving them. I mean, there's no way. That's not him. Can't be. Look at John chapter 9, verse 8. It says, his neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said, he's the one. No, 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 others were saying. He just looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one, I'm the one. Can you imagine this blind beggar trying to convince everybody? I swear, I'm Steve. I promise, I'm him. He's trying to convince everybody. It is hilarious, but it gets better. Because now enter our Pharisees. Now the Pharisees walk up on the scene. You know, they're, they're kind of like one of these crime scene investigators. A crime has taken place and they, they collect all the evidence and at the end of all their collecting of evidence, they determine there's no possible way that Jesus can be from God. Well, well why not? Because he broke two rules. And he's not God. Well, well, what rules did he break? Well, you remember... This is the Sabbath day. Remember on, in John 5 when we studied the lame man who was healed? He did that on the Sabbath. We talked about legalism in that sermon. Remember, legalism starts with a good intention. There is a biblical command. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, man, I love God. I want to please God. What does that look like? How, how, how do I honor this day? How do I keep it holy? And that is our responsibility, folks. It's to take God's commands, understand what they mean to our lives, and then begin to live them. Well, legalism starts out that way. I, I just want to know what honoring this day looks like. And the Pharisees came up with 39 rules of what it looked like to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
Nothing wrong with coming up with those rules. Nothing wrong with deciding what that looks like. But when you take your rules and you make them higher than God, then you've got a problem. When you take your rules and begin to judge and beat up others with them, you've got a problem. And so they come up on this scene and Jesus has broken two rules. Because in their 39 rules of how to honor the Sabbath day, they said on the Sabbath day, you cannot need. K-N-E-A-D. You know, like you need bread. And did you know, when Jesus was mixing that mud together, that's kneading. And, and then, as if that was not bad enough, he picked that mud up and wiped it on his eyes. You know what that is, don't you? That's anointing. Uh-uh, can't anoint on the Sabbath. And he can't be God. What an incredible illustration of losing the forest through the trees. Here are these guys desperately want to please God, but in wanting to please God, they come up with a list of man-made rules that they are so focused on that they cannot see when God is standing right in front of them. Well, now they've got a problem. They've got to prove that what everybody's talking about didn't really happen. And so they bring in the blind guy. He's on the hot seat now. They bring him in in a trial to try to prove that this whole thing is a hoax. It's a scam. We're at a carnival today and, and somebody's just pulled the wool over y'all's eyes. No pun intended. Look at what happens. Verse 24. So a second time, they'd already questioned him once. So a second time they summoned the man who'd been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, well, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Isn't that awesome? Verse 26, then they asked him, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? Guys, I've already told you. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But this man, we don't know where he's from. Well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to them. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Ah! You were entire born entirely in sin. And you're trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. Did you see the hilarity of what's going on here? We've got the most brilliant, the most learned men of the day. And this blind beggar. Now understand, he wouldn't even know how to read or write. He's as dumb as a post. And he's got these guys all tied up in knots. All they can do is throw them out of there. Because they don't know what to do. Man, see this blind beggar for what he is. He's blind. He's an outcast. His clothes are torn. He stinks. And you know what? He probably deserves to be in that condition. That's how the neighbors would have seen him. That's how these Pharisees would have seen him. Okay, quick time out. Let's think about that statement. Folks, we need to be real careful about looking at somebody's condition and saying they deserve to be in that condition. 
Because unless you can walk on water, a little reference to last week's sign, unless you can walk on water, you're not qualified to make that call. But we do. And you know what's so wrong about that statement? It's maybe the, one of the most arrogant things you can say because when you make that statement, you're implying you don't deserve to be in that condition. <gasps> well, I don't deserve to be in that condition. I've not done what that person has done. Really, what has that person done? What horrible sin have they committed that makes them so different from you? Now, folks, hands down, in this world... Some sins have worse consequences than others. You've heard me say that a lot of times. There's a very different consequence for me lying to you and me murdering you. Very different consequence. But, folks, you need to understand, the lie and the murder have equal ability to separate you from God. The lie and the murder have equal ability to bring down the judgment of God on your life. So don't look at somebody else and talk about what they deserve as if your life was clean and pure and there's no sin to deal with. Yeah, their sin in a worldly consequence state may be worse than yours. But that doesn't mean yours doesn't have you in a jam with God. You know, I could take you to a passage in Romans chapter 1 where God talks about murderers and homosexuals. And what that means. Did you know that in the very same sentence, he talks about people who gossip? People who are greedy? In God's eyes, the murderer, the homosexual, and the gossiper, and the greedy, and the disobedient to parents, they all go in the exact same class before God. So be real careful about talking about what somebody deserves. I think we'd best be spent spending our time Focused on our own need for God's mercy and forgiveness. Okay, timeout's over. Back to preaching. That wasn't preaching. I was just, you know, talking for a moment. Back to our scene. We've got this untrained, uneducated man who's got these religious, pompous, educated leaders all tied up in knots. How did he do that? How does a guy who's, who's not trained for debate, how does he do that? And not only does he do that, but he grows in his own faith and knowledge at the very same time. Look at this. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Therefore they asked him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus. Okay, that's all he knows about him. He, he doesn't know who healed him. I'm sure somebody told him, This guy, man, that's Jesus. All he knows is a man called Jesus. Look at verse 17. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet. Okay, now I went from a moment ago saying, this is a man called Jesus, to now he sees him as a prophet. Now in this culture, to, to refer to somebody as a prophet, that's a, a man of God, he's an instrument of God, he's the voice of God. Okay, there's a growing understanding of who Jesus is. Now look at verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. He started the story viewing the man, the man viewing Jesus as just a man. And in the course, as these events unfold throughout the day, he sees them as God 
and he worships him. So look what's happening in the space of, I don't know how many hours, how much of this day this was unfolding and going on, but let's say in the course of a day, this absolutely uneducated, untrained person ties up these religious leaders, ties up all their brilliant thinking, while at the same time growing in his own faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. What did he do that caused all that to happen? One thing. He simply talked about what Jesus did in his life. That's it. I once was blind, and now I can see. Folks, your best witness is simply to communicate what Jesus Christ means to you, what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Listen to me. I absolutely believe we should take classes, we should learn, we should study. Now, I don't don't believe that because I want to go into debates and beat people. I believe that because I want to take the word of God and with the best ability and the best commitment possible, I want people to understand what God has said. But having said that, folks, you don't need a degree. You don't need certain levels of expertise. You don't need certain training to go into any conversation and say, let me talk with you about what Jesus has done in my life. And the fact is, most of us in this room would never do this. Because we're scared. Man, if I, if, I, if I open up this can of worms, they're going to ask questions I can't answer. If I open up this can of worms, they're going to be antagonistic. They're going to debate back, and I'm going to look, our greatest fear, what are we going to look? Stupid. Folks, you don't get any dumber than this guy. You know, I say that kind of funny. I really don't mean it funny. He's a blind beggar. He would have had no chance for any training or education. He was spit on. He was cast out. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't do anything. He could do this though. He could talk about what Jesus meant in his life. And it ties the most brilliant minds of the day up in knots. And it helps him to grow in his own faith, in his own knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Not everybody is going to see. As a matter of fact, most people in the world are going to remain blind. Look at what Jesus says in verse 39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see. And those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, well, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. What Jesus is dealing here is with I guess probably the greatest sin there is and the sin by which all other sins flow out of, the pride of self. You know, when you recognize, you know what, on my own, I can't see God. On my own, I can't see the path that He has for me. On my own, I can't look out into the world and my relationships and my circumstances and see God working, see His glory. I can't see it. I am blind. I'm in the dark. Jesus says, if that's your confession, I'm here to recreate your eyes. I'm here to be the light in your world. But if you're here today, and you're saying, you know, I can see just fine, to be quite honest with you. I'm smart. I make a lot of money. I I can handle my own problems. I'm doing just fine walking through this world. I don't need any help. Jesus says, you're blind. You'll remain blind. And you will one day know that you're blind. And it will be too late. For night is coming. 
the judgment will come. Until that time comes, Jesus says, we, not I, look at verse 4, we are here to do God's work. Jesus entered this world to do the work of God and he has invited those whom he's healed those who have sight, he's invited us to join him. John 6, 29 defines the work of God as believing on the one whom God sent, Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that. But folks, there is one activity that will enable me to grow in my own belief in God. And that same activity will also help others to come to belief in God. And that one activity is simply this being a testimony, being a witness for what God has done in my life. Isn't that awesome? All i got to do is talk about what Jesus has meant to me, what Jesus has done for me. And you know what, folks? A lot of people, as this man faced, a lot of people might ridicule you. A lot of people might just toss you out of their life and want nothing more to do with you. But quite possibly... Quite possibly there will be some who will one day be able to say, I was blind, but now I see. And it will be your story that Jesus used. Your greatest impact on this world is simply to be willing to talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Let's pray. Father, in this room right now, there are those who are blind. They think they can see you and a way to you. They think they can see and understand life. They think they can do it in their own power, their own wisdom. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, you will move and work through this room right now. And that you'll touch that person. Bring them to a place of humility and dependence where they realize, I can't see. And God, in this moment, would you recreate their eyes as they reach out to you in faith, as they recognize their need for you. Lord, many of us in this room have had you restore our sight. We're followers of the, of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would put in us a boldness to tell the story. To be encouraged by this man. It's not a matter of how smart I am or my ability to debate or to win arguments. It's just a willingness to be used by you. Lord, I don't know how many people are in this room right now. Maybe, maybe 600. God, I pray that when 2008 draws to a close, that you'll bring one person into the life of every single person in this room for whom we can share the story of what Jesus has done in our lives. And I pray that by the end of 2008, there will be 600 more people who will be able to say, I was blind, but now I see. Oh God, we want to make ourselves available to you for that. We want to be used by you in that way. Bring that person into our lives. And God, even if in the process of getting to that person, we are talking to others and we're ridiculed and made fun of, God, we thank you that even when it doesn't turn out like we like, even in that moment, we're growing 
We're growing in our faith. We're growing in our knowledge of you. Oh God, you're wonderful. Thank you for letting us see you, for seeing the beauty of your word. Thank you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.